0: Good morning, my name is Scott Gilliland, I'm one of the associate pastors here at Lovers Lane and I want to welcome you to Thrive, everyone here in the room and those who are joining us online want to say hello to you as well, thanks for being here this morning as we begin a brand new sermon series called Greater Than. And we are going to be talking about discipleship, which uh, discipleship is one of those words that we use in the church a lot, and yet a lot of people say, I have no clue what that word means. Uh, and so, discipleship very simply means uh, when we follow in Jesus' footsteps, when we uh, take upon a life that, that tries to make us look more like Jesus. It's that process of wanting to become more like Jesus. And so, for six weeks, we're going to talk about discipleship, what it means to look more like Jesus and to live more like Jesus. And, uh, and we're, each week we're going to be talking about um, how the life that God is calling us to in Christ is greater than the life that we're leaving behind. Because when we talk about discipleship, a lot of times we talk about it in terms of the cost of discipleship. That's a biblical uh, teaching and understanding that when we follow Jesus, that means we usually have to give something up. We have to sacrifice. There's a sacrificial aspect to discipleship that's inherent in the Christian faith. Uh, Jesus says, you know, pick up your cross and follow me, right? It's this idea that we take upon, um, we, we, we give up some things, we take some new things on that may not always be comfortable, they may be challenging, they may be difficult, and yet... When we read the Gospels and when we read the Bible, we understand that a life with God, a life following after Christ's example, is greater than the life that we lived before. It is more abundant. It is better, even though, yes, it may have crosses that we have to carry. So let's talk about those things that we're going to have to get up, but let's also talk about those things that we stand to gain as we grow in a deeper, more meaningful relationship with Jesus. So today I want to start with just like a really big, basic, foundational, fundamental question because before we can talk about the life that we stand that we can live with God, before we can talk about all these different aspects of our faith that can increase when we grow as deeper disciples, uh, let's talk about why life with God is greater than life alone in the first place. Why is a life of faith, why is life with God greater than a life alone? Because I know as a younger pastor… Uh, my generation is increasingly non-religious. Uh, we're going to have more and more friends and family and younger people that are going to look to the church and look at faith and say, why do we even need that? We're already seeing this happen. And so we need to be able to answer a question like this. Why is life with God greater than a life alone? Because life alone can look pretty good. I mean, you could be watching the NFL pregame show right now, right? I mean, a lot of you are kind of thinking that's why I came to church at 9 30 so I can get home and be ready for the noon kickoff because it's game day, baby. Yeah. Um, woohoo. Yeah, I'm digging the Jill Emery rocking her Cowboys jersey this morning. Um, sometimes that life alone can seem just fine. And so, why? Should we live a life of faith? Why should we live a life with God? Why is that so compelling in the first place? And I want you to be thinking about these next six weeks… These are not messages meant for you to come and sit down and just listen to us talk and be like, wow, that was really inspiring and amazing, because, I mean, it will be. Come on, it's us. But no, I'm kidding. Little joke. Um, As great as the sermons may be, whether it's me or Reagan or Stan or somebody else preaching, um, I hope that each week you walk away knowing that it is an invitation for you to consider your answers to these questions. Because I'm going to offer a little bit of my answer to this question, why is life with God greater than life alone? That's a big question that we could be here for hours and talk about, but I don't think that my answer is the one most needed. I want to hear your answer to these questions, and the people in your life that are going to bring these kind of questions to you, they're going to want your answer, not my answer. And so during these next six weeks, I also want you to think about your own life of faith, your own discipleship journey, and how you would answer these questions to someone if, God forbid, they ask you about Jesus, right? How would you answer this question, why is life with God greater than life alone? Uh, for this message today and our purposes, I want us to look at a, a book called Isaiah in the, in the Bible. Now, I say the book, and I'm already sort of misleading you, because Isaiah is not really just one book. It's at least two and maybe even three books that were sort of edited together, and, and we, we include them as one piece classically as Isaiah, but going back hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, theologians and scholars have understood that this is probably a collection of at least two, if not three, uh, different authors and different works, and, and and so the, the, the first part of Isaiah, the first several chapters, uh, are, are written by a guy named Isaiah. There was this prophet named Isaiah, and he and he writes these prophecies, and, and a lot of the book of Isaiah has to do with prophecies about a Messiah that's going to come one day. And so you may think to yourself, I've heard Isaiah before, I've heard us preach on Isaiah, and it's most likely been during the season of Advent, those four weeks that lead up to Christmas, because Isaiah talks a lot about this Savior that's going to come one day and going to reestablish the new kingdom and the new Jerusalem, and yay, it's going to be so great. And then They get Jesus, and they're like, that's not what we asked for, right? Um, That's what a lot of times Isaiah gets lifted up and preached about. Um, There's this second part of Isaiah. That's where we're going to be today in chapter 55. The second part of Isaiah has to do with Israelites who have been released from Babylonian captivity, and they're being sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that's a really big thing, because in the Jewish faith, the temple is like the most important thing for them. It is the place where God's Spirit is literally housed. It is the most holy of holies. It is their anchor and their rock. And so the the middle portion of Isaiah deals with the Israelites preparing to go back and rebuild this temple, and they're beginning to dream again, and they're beginning to receive visions from God about what life could look like with this new temple. Now, to understand our Scripture today, it comes at the very end of that section, so section one's Isaiah, section two is this temple building stuff. 55 comes at the very end of that. To, to understand this best, we've got to understand the situation the Israelites are coming out of. Any ancient history, like Mesopotamian ancient history, like total nerds in the room? Yeah? No? Hardcore history with Dan Carlin? Anybody? Best podcast ever? Yes. Um, it, each episode is like seven hours long. It's fantastic. And um, uh, so the Israelites were conquered by the Babylonians. Um, That's what begins their period of exile. Babylonian culture and the Babylonian empire was notorious and very well known for suppressing any and all outside cultural or religious influences. Uh, That was a way of expressing their power. When they conquered you, they would tear down your temples. They would tear down your places of worship. They would take your statues and your cultural artifacts, and they would keep them, right? And they would force you to sort of bend your knee and and worship at the altar of Babylon, you know, that you would have to, worship their kings if we go and read the old testament book of daniel that's what this is all about the book of daniel is all about a young jewish boy being tested and he becomes a jewish man being tested into as to whether or not he will maintain his jewish faith in the babylonian empire because they so desperately want him to renounce it and then there's this guy that comes along named cyrus cyrus the great Cyrus the Great, we'll see his picture on the screens. Uh, and Cyrus was renowned for being a handsome man, as we can tell, obviously. That's a good look at that beard. I mean, that's a good jawline right there. Um, he was also notorious and known to be very tolerant. And he was actually a very beloved emperor. He grew the Persian Empire, it was massive, the biggest empire that the world would see until the Roman Empire would come along in Jesus' time. It, Cyrus, one of the reasons he was so good at what he did. And maybe he really believed this was the best way to lead, or maybe he was a cynic and just knew it would pay off politically. But he was very tolerant of other cultures and other religions, and he would let you express your faith and your culture and your beliefs however you wanted. And so it's Cyrus the Great who conquers Babylon, and then he sends the Israelites back. He sends this small group of Israelites back to Jerusalem to build their temple. Because he says it's important. If that's important to you, then I want you to have that. Right? And again, maybe he's doing some political calculus or maybe he really believes in, in allowing people to express their faith however they want. But that's why the Israelites are going back. And the reason I bring that up is because all of this is swirling around in the heads of the Israelites as they, um, as they are heading back to build their temple. You know, kings are important to them. They had King David, who was this great, masterful king, and they thought the Messiah was going to be something like King David, and maybe they thought the Messiah might be something like King Cyrus, because he looked pretty great too. And he was letting them go back and rebuild their temple, and clearly this temple, oh man, you know, God's going to use this temple for great things, and, and maybe we'll get a king like Cyrus too. And all this is swirling around in their heads when we get to chapter 55, and God gets to offer a final word. He gets to have the last word as they prepare to go and rebuild this temple. And his final word is kind of interesting. It's it's almost a word of caution, but then it's also a word of hope and of dreams. And today as we talk about why life with God is greater than life alone, I think God is reminding the Israelites that as important as this temple is and as great as Cyrus may be, If they think they are going back to Jerusalem just to build a temple and receive a new king, they're mistaken. Because that's what life alone looks like. Life with kings and temples is what got them into exile in the first place. God is trying to reveal to them that there is something more in the works that they can't even comprehend in the moment. So with all of that in mind, let's pray over our Scripture this morning and invite God to be a part of this time because we believe that the Bible is a living word and that the Spirit can be a part of this time of revealing new wisdom and knowledge to us today, even if we've read these words before. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the cool air uh, this morning that we walked out and were greeted with after days of rain. We thank you for the rain. God, we, we ask that you'd be with us this morning as we humbly approach your word, your stories, your stories, your text, that you would allow your words to the people of Israel resound today, and remind us that these are words for us, us. They're not only words for a group of temple builders thousands of years ago. God allow these words to change the way that we live our lives. In your sense we pray, amen. We'll begin in verse 6 of chapter 55 if you're following along, and you'll see the words on your screens. God says this uh, in the 55th chapter, that's a new number, um, my brain is tired. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God for he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Let's stop there and talk about it. So, like I said in this series, we're going to talk about things that we give up and then also things that we stand to gain. Uh, three things this morning. The first one is this we stand to give up our narrow view. When we enter into a relationship with God, we offer up, we place on the altar our narrow view, our narrow vision, our narrow way of seeing things, and we gain trust in God's greater vision. We gain trust in God's view of us and the world around us. So, in the Christian faith, we believe that God is omniscient. That's a big fancy word that means that God sees everything all at once. God sees all of eternity all at once. God is so much more aware of reality than we ever could be. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's what this is trying to capture in Isaiah, this idea that God is so much more aware. God sees so much more than we do. And it got me thinking about MAPSCO. Anybody remember MAPSCOs? Now, I don't have a MAPSCO. Um, my dad had this. This is a 10-year-old road atlas with Lightning McQueen on the front. Um, and it was a gift. I won't say the agent's name. Some State Farm agent thought that in 2008, these would be a great way to get his name out there. I'm like, literally the year that Google Maps, like, became popular. That was a rough investment. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that really got his bang for his buck. Um, so my dad had this old Mapsco growing up, and I, I'm pretty sure that he bought it when, when my parents moved to the mid-cities in sort of the late 80s, early 90s, and, uh, and I learned how to drive using this Mapsco because, you know, we didn't have smartphones and Google Maps yet when I was in high school, and, um, and that thing was infuriating to use because my dad bought it in the late 80s and early 90s, right? And I was driving in like the early 2000s. And if you know anything about the DFW airport during that 20-year period, like everything was built, right? Like it, when, I, when my parents first moved to Bedford, the, the land that is now my elementary school was a cow pasture, right? And I was using those maps to learn how to drive. So my dad would say, okay, let's go drive and figure out how to go. And if you remember Mapsco, you had to like one page, like go to this page, it was like a choose your own adventure version of traveling. It was really confusing. And so I'd be like, okay, I think I have it mapped out. And then I started driving and there's like new roads everywhere and new intersections. And what is that doing there? That's supposed to be the old beet farm. You know, what does that mean? And uh, it was just a really, really hard experience. Um, And then 2008 came when the state farm insurance agent made all these atlases. Um, And all of a sudden we had these smartphones and this really Amazing thing on the seventh day, God rested and God made Google Maps, right? Um, And I don't go anywhere without using. Google Maps. I love Google Maps. I love it for three very big reasons, and I think it has to do, I think it kind of connects with why I love my relationship with God. Number one, Google Maps sees everything all the time, right? Google Maps knows exactly where that accident is, and it knows if it's in the HOV lane or in the main lanes, and let me tell you, when you're driving with a toddler in the back, if that HOV lane is clear, I'm like, see you, suckers. Sorry, your life is not working. I'm living my best life right now. Thank you, Google Maps. I love Google Maps, I use it ever. I don't care if I'm going down the block. I I will put the address in. If Google Maps tells me to go, take three rights and then a left, I'll do it. I don't care. I will listen to it every single step of the way. I love that Google Maps is aware of the accident down the road. It's aware of the construction scene down the road. It adds the new roads as they pop up. It is so superior to Maps Go in that regard because Maps Go only knows what it's like at the moment it's printed. The Israelites they're going back to uh, to Jerusalem. And they're using their maps Go. They're going back to what they've known. They're going to go rebuild a temple. They're going to go pray for another king. They're going to try and repeat what they've already known. And God's saying, no, I, there's something so much bigger than this that you can't see. And, and one reason I love my faith in God and one reason life with God is greater than life alone is because I believe that God is so much more aware of my reality than I am. And I need to tap into that somehow, even in a small way with my relationship. Does that mean that I'm a psychic? No. No. Does that mean that I can tell you when the accident is going to come into my life? No. But what I can tell you is that my God is aware of it, and I'm going to trust in His leading me through that. I'm going to trust in His leading me through that. The second reason I think Google Maps is so far superior is because Google Maps knows when to tell you to make a U-turn. Right? Mapsco can't tell you when to make a U-turn. And if you're anything like me, you hear the Google Maps say a lot, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, because you missed your exit or you went past the intersection. And how nice it is to get that course correction immediately and not waste 10 minutes going the wrong direction, right? And when you ignore it and you ignore it, it just keeps going, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. Sometimes I think that God's voice is loudest in my life when God's saying, make a U-turn, make a U-turn, make it. You do U-don't want to go down that road, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. And it can save me so much anger and strife and frustration when I actually allow myself to listen to something beyond me saying, make a U-turn, make a U-turn. Last thing I think Google Maps is superior to Maps Go is when every morning I plug my address. Uh, My work address, I've got it saved, I I hit go to work, and where we live, there's like three or four different routes we could take any given day to get to Lover's Lane. And um, what I love about it is that, you know, we live, if there's no traffic, it's like 25 minutes, no matter which way you go, which is fine. Um, that's great when that works out. But on most mornings, right, you just hit it, and it's just a sea of red. You know, it's just like there's a bloodbath on the highways. It's just there's traffic everywhere. Oh, there's 14 accidents on 75. Well, it's a good day, you know. And um, what I love about it, though, is that I'll hit it, and there's this bright red number of, like, it's going to take 49 minutes. Just stay home, you know. Um, but but I'll, I'll select the route that it suggests, and, and the voice will tell me, uh, there is heavier than usual, usual traffic today. I'm like, no, kidding, wow, thanks. But it says, but you are still on the best route. And I, There's something comforting about knowing I'm still on the best route, even though I'm sitting in standstill traffic in the HOV lane on 75, knowing that I'm still on the best route, and even if I took these detours, it wouldn't save me any time because it's just gonna take me 49 minutes to get to work today, it just is. I'm on the best route, even though it's taking longer than I thought. How many times has God looked at the path in my life and I think I'm supposed to get there in 25 minutes and God says I'm sorry it's going to take 49 but you're still on the best route. You're still on the best route. If I had my maps go out, I would be Who does this? When you are in any traffic, all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're a map genius and you're trying to find every last shortcut to get around and it takes you 14 times as long to get where you're going but you're like, "Oh, I can't sit still in traffic. Like that's insane." It's so Peace giving, life giving for God to be able to say to me, Scott, I know you want to get there in 25, and that's just not going to happen. You're still on the best route. Don't drive yourself crazy. It's going to be okay. You're going to get there. You're on the best route. When we enter into a relationship with God, we have to offer up our narrow vision. We have to put the maps go on the altar and allow God to be the one. We have to trust in that great, grand vision that God has. And the thing is, that gives you peace when you embrace that fully. When I embrace the vision of God fully, when I understand that God has a greater handle on my reality than I ever could, then it gives me peace because I can trust in that. And it doesn't mean that I avoid all the accidents. It doesn't mean that I avoid all the construction zones. But what it means is that I know that God is guiding me through it, and I'm going to get to my destination okay. Second thing, let's keep going. Verses 10 through 11, beginning of verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The second thing that we have to give up. When we engage in a relationship with God, we give up the stress of a self-contained life. But what we get, what we gain in the end is the peace of life in God's big picture. We give up the stress of a self-contained life and we gain the peace that comes with living in God's big picture. Okay, what do I mean by that? College football season, yeah? Got any big college football fans? In the room, any SMU fans? That's a rough ticket this year. Uh, my Mean Green are two and zero. We beat uh, the School of the Incarnate Word or something. <laughs> I don't even know if they play football, but we smoked them, man. It was awesome. Um, College football season is great. Uh, What amazes me is that every year uh, there are at least 20 different schools that think it's their year to win the championship, right? Now, like, I'm a Cowboys fan. Every year we are a Super Bowl contender. I don't care what you say. This is our year, baby. This is our year. Any true believers in the room? Come with me now. Um, (laughs) We'll have our grief share after the game today at 3.30. So... Uh, 20 different teams at least probably go into this season thinking this is our year, we're going to win a championship and and for every team their their definition of success may be different Uh, but the reality is most teams are not going to win the championship I think that checks out mathematically right? most teams are not going to win the national championship I think only one is going to win the national championship and so if you're a team like Bama right, and after UNT's two wins I'm like give us Bama Give us Bama, you know, Um, if you're a team like Bama and you believe every year, I think they go into every season thinking we win the national championship or bust, then that means when even if you win every game in your regular season, even if you win your conference championship and even if you play a fantastic three quarters of football, if you end up losing in that fourth quarter, what do you feel like? An absolute failure. Failure. Because the goal, what we're supposed to do is win a championship. It's that or bust. And there's a lot of teams that think this year it is championship or bust, and that's a lot of bust. And even for teams like UNT could start next week and and just get shellacked the rest of the season. It could be a failure for them. Everyone's sliding scale is different for what constitutes success. But the reality is there's going to be a lot of teams that are going to feel like failures at the end of the season. There's just going to be a lot of teams that don't achieve what they think they're supposed to achieve. And I think in life, a lot of us have these goals, the expectations. Maybe we're a UNT and we're like, I don't know. I just want to live, live a simple life. I don't need to win a championship. Maybe you're a Bama and you're like, I need the biggest house and the fastest car. I need the best office. I need, the, I need to run the best company. I need to do this, 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 this. I need to have the best family. And anything short of that, you're going to feel like a failure. That doesn't sound like a fun way to live. I mean, there's times when I get into that mindset and that mode of thinking. And that is not a fun way to live because when every day has to be better than the day before it, when every success has to outdo the last one, when your life has to be lived perfectly for it to be considered a success, guess what? You're going to end the season feeling busted. Unless you're Bama. Well, God willing, they'll be busted too. Uh, We can only pray, church. We can only pray. (laughs) When I offer up my self-contained life, when I say, you know what, I'm tired of living as though everything is on my shoulders. I'm tired of living as though my life has to be a perfect success for me to rest easy at the end of the day. I'm tired of wondering about when my midlife crisis is going to hit, or maybe I'm in the middle of my midlife crisis, or maybe I'm towards the end of my life, and I'm looking back and I'm going, did I do enough? Did I do enough? Did I do enough? And then I hear God saying this. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed seed to the sower and bread to the water, that is the way that my word works. That is the way that my work works. That is the way that I work in this world. When I say I've started something, I'm going to finish it. I will always enjoy success in what I'm about, and God is inviting us to be a part of that. See the Israelites, they think that they're going to build this temple. Well, what if they don't get the temple built by the time they die? I bet you there's a worker or two that's going with them thinking, Well, I've got to go get this temple built, and how must they have felt if they thought that was their purpose in life was to build this temple and what if they don't make it? Are they a failure? Because they came up short. I don't think so because I think when we begin to see ourselves as something bigger than just our individual lives, when we start to grade ourselves not by what we've accomplished but by what we're doing as part of what God is accomplishing, it gives us some peace because we know that God is going to accomplish His purposes in the end. And even if we contribute a small, meager amount, even if we are a UNT in a land full of Bamas, we can know that we helped. A little bit. And if you help to bring the kingdom of God even an inch closer, is that life worth living? Was that life successful? I would say yes. I would say, yes, I think we spend so much of our time worrying and stressing about what our individual legacies are and what our individual accomplishments are, when if we would shift our attention and ask God, what is the legacy that you want for my life? What is the legacy that you are working towards? What is the work that you would set before me? I promise you, you will get to the end of your life and you won't feel one ounce of regret because you know you did your work for the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to be big and flashy either. I think sometimes we, we can overdo celebrating people who do really big and flashy things. And I got a really great lesson in my life growing up about how d- doing work for God's kingdom doesn't always equate with traditional success. And yet I believe that God honors that kind of work. There was a man in my church growing up named Tom Vastine. He was an older guy by the time I was… He was like old when I was born. He was like always old. Um <laughs> He's just like perpetually 90, right, you know, and I knew him for 20 years. He was always 90, you know, and, um, and Tom was known in the community for one really simple thing is that for like decades, Tom would sacrifice like 30 minutes a week or every other week or something like that, nothing huge, and he would go to the local kindergarten near his house, and he would read books to kids. That's what he'd do, but he did that, and he did that, and he did that over the course of decades. And, you know, as a pastor, you learn something about people who die later in life. If you are blessed to live until you're 90, 95, even 100, those people tend to have actually really small funerals, small attended, I mean, because their friends have all passed away by that point. And so, really, it's just family and maybe the few friends who are still alive. And so you'd think someone like Tom who lived well into his 90s when he finally passed away, it would have been a small little service in our little chapel space at the church. But this guy was well into his 90s and we filled the sanctuary and had overflow room for this guy who read books to kids. Just 30 minutes a week, every other week, nothing big, nothing flashy, nothing successful, in the traditional sense. He was a simple guy. He wasn't like a pillar of the local business community. He wasn't some sort of wealthy donor. He wasn't anybody of any sort of importance, except he was important to the people that he invested in, little by little, over time. And so maybe you think to yourself, like, Scott, I don't know how to impact the kingdom of God. That sounds like a really big concept, and I'm just trying to live my life or maybe you're looking at this and you're going, Scott, I don't have decades to donate at this point. You know, I don't have the gift of that amount of time. That's great for Tom, but my situation's a little bit different. I guess I just want to ask, what it, when you leave the church today, is there something you can do to make somebody's life a little bit brighter? This week is, do you have 30 minutes that you could give to your community, to your local school, to your world, to make the world just a little bit brighter? It doesn't have to be big and flashy. It just has to be intentional. And you tell me if you get to the end of your life, and you spend a quiet moment with God, I don't care how simple or small that act was, if you did that at the, at the motivation of God's spirit, if you did that because you feel like God was moving you to do that, there will be a peace that comes over your soul and your body, knowing that, yeah, you didn't build a hospital You didn't have the fanciest house in the neighborhood. You weren't some celebrity. You didn't make the cover of D Magazine or whatever it is that people think is successful. But you did what God asked you to do. And you're a part of God's larger story. And the kingdom of God is maybe an inch closer than it was before. And that is a life worth living. That's what a life with God will bring you. So, We give up our narrow view. We gain trust in God's view. We give up stress of the self-contained life. We gain the peace of life in God's big picture. We keep reading, and it says this in verse 12. For you shall go out in joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst into song, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall be to the Lord for a memorial, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The last thing we give up and the last thing we gain this week a life, we give up a life built around my dreams or your dreams, and we gain a life built around God's dreams. Like I've said before, the Israelites, they were going to Jerusalem to build a temple. That was their dream. We want a temple. We want a space. We want this stone building where we can feel secure and where we know God's presence will be. And they were going at the behest of great King Cyrus, and they were dreaming of this new king they might be granted, of a, a new king kind of like Cyrus. But in the image of David, a king who would bring them glory and riches and respect in this contested part of the world. They were dreaming of temples and kings. And did you notice what God is dreaming about in this in this part of the scripture. God says, I have a dream too. My dream is that the trees themselves and the mountains and the hills cry out and sing and they clap with their hands. God isn't dreaming of a temple. He's dreaming of the world being restored into a place of worship. Did you catch that? He's saying, I am dreaming that the hills themselves would sing, and the trees would clap their hands. I'm dreaming of of thorny bushes being turned into great fruitful trees. I am dreaming of something that is going to affect the whole world, not just Jerusalem. He's dreaming of a king in the form of Jesus, not of David. He's dreaming of redemption and restoration, and they're dreaming of buildings and of crowns. It's such an important reminder to me that there are dreams that I feel like I have for my life and for my family, and I think that they're worthy dreams. But when I come into a relationship with God, I put all of that on the table, and I say, God, what would you like to do with this? And sometimes I think God says, yeah, this dream is perfect. This fits right in with my vision for your life. And then sometimes God may see that dream isn't going to make the cut. You know, If I've got a dream that, that I need to achieve this material success and this material wealth in my life, God might say, you know what, that, that is not really why I've got you here. If I say that I've got a dream that, that my daughter could grow up in a world where um, she's free to pursue any life that she wants, then God would say, absolutely, that's a dream that I have for your family as well. And so I think it's important in our relationship with God to remember that our dreams are not the most important thing. And just because we enter into the Christian faith doesn't mean that all of our dreams and hopes and goals fly out the window. God may say, yeah, those are worthy dreams pursue though, but we have to place them on the altar. We have to ask God's opinion. We have to spend time in patience and prayer on these things. Just because you go to God and say, hey God, uh, what do you think about this? He doesn't have to respond immediately like, oh, it's so frustrating, right? That's how the life, of faith works, that we actually have to spend time praying, we have to spend time in these spiritual practices, and over time we gain clarity, we gain vision, we gain an understanding of what the dreams God has for our life and the world around us begin to look like.